Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp H-E-L-P. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hi, and welcome to the Progressive Britain podcast. I'm your host, Joe Holland. In this episode, as part of the Progress History Project, I speak to Chris Clark, author of The Dark Knight and the Puppet Master. It's a book centred on three myths that occupy the populist left. The Dark Knight, the Puppet Master, and the Golden Age. Chris and I talk about the myths, look at the evidence behind them, and discuss their consequences. His book really is an eye-opener, even for someone who already sees themselves as a pluralist, a word that Chris focuses on throughout and his argument and evidence are watertight and convincing. I'd recommend his book to anyone interested in politics, particularly labour politics, but also anyone who wants to understand society better. Here's my discussion with Chris on his book, The Dark Knight and the Puppet Master. Okay, hi Chris, thanks so much for coming on the Progressive Britain podcast. Thanks very much for having me. So I want to get straight down to it. Um, could you, for our listeners, briefly break down these three myths that you um, explain in, in your book? Yeah, the uh, the, the book um, focuses on three narratives, which, in my view, really get in the way of progressive politics and progressive goals. They they stop us from achieving uh achieving what we want to achieve so they're, they're very counterproductive narratives and they're also narratives which take us into quite dangerous and sometimes not you know unethical territory if you like uh, so the three myths are um i call them the dark knight that's knight with a k so it's the kind of idea of a dark knight against the white knight struggle that, that politics is always um a struggle between uh good and evil um the uh the puppet master which is the idea that all of society's problems are essentially authored or come from come with the the blessing of the powerful um and uh, the golden era which is a sort of cherry picked version of the the past which imagines the past as a, a kind of socialist arcadia a moment of original socialism from which we've steadily deteriorated into a, a bleak neoliberal future and my view is that these three narratives Fundamental are fundamentally barriers to actually doing progressive things and achieving um, left-wing uh, goals. And you you set out the myths very convincingly in the book. And you, for anyone who hasn't read the book, you dedicate effectively, I'd say, almost a third to each myth, with slightly more to the golden era towards the end of the book. But each one of them you you outline and you um, go into detail using a lot of data and evidence to to prove why the myths exist, um, empirics that support the foundation of your argument. And I want to delve into that. So could we first go to the Dark Knight myth, the first myth that you present, this perpetual struggle between good and evil. Um, in chapter six, you say, you talk about these human complexities that can and should preempt dark night thinking and then in chapter 18 you go on to say that um the dark night myth is the myth with the least truth to it of the three so i want to ask you um if you think even though there is so little truth in the dark night myth if reliance on the kind of human complexities that would preempt the myth if building our politics around these complexities could be unhelpful to left-wing movements 
attempting to garner broad support, especially in the face of right-wing populist movements and parties that offer such clear, simple, dark night narratives to voters. Is, is the best way to counter right-wing populism a recognition of the human complexity and the destruction of the dark night thinking? Or what would you say to the argument that the best way to counter right-wing populism is a clear left-wing dark night counter-narrative that is simple for voters to understand and take on? Yeah, m- my argument in the book that I am making is that over- overall is that left left-wing populism is not the best way of taking on right-wing populism and in fact is also not the uh um is not a kind of ethical or or correct way um to take on right-wing populism um and my argument is that that we should we should avoid ways of thinking which say the political spectrum is a moral spectrum things that people that are right-wing or people that hold right-wing views are are bad people or are driven by spite or self-interest or or callousness of some kind um, and reject those uh, sort of us and them narratives which I think underpin elements of uh, the left and certainly elements of left-wing populism. Um, my, my issue and when I talk about human complexity in the book what I talk about is what I'm aiming to talk about is the the fact that any individual uh, has a whole set of things that that are, are aspects of their identity so they could be a, a Tory voter who also relies on um relies on welfare who uh who who reads the guardian who um uh, who, who works in the public sector um who is uh uh who's from a working class background or whatever it may be people are complex and if you start to say somebody that votes conservative is a bad person full stop or somebody that works in the private sector is a bad person full stop um you immediately remove that complexity and you essentially outgroup a whole bunch you know a, a whole swathes of of society if you like so you, you outgroup the the daily mail reader who who votes labor and there are actually a sizable group of those people um you outgroup the uh uh, the, the, um, the person who works in the, the private sector who's actually so quite supportive of redistributive taxation, whatever it may be, the, 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 the idea that politics is a struggle of good against evil immediately judges people who do not agree with you on every single point as being bad people and out, essentially outgroups them. Um, and so I think it's uh, it's quite a kind of, unethical and unhelpful and divisive way to behave to go into this what I call white night dark night us and them good and evil way of viewing politics but I also think it's electorally counterproductive because if you're interested in um in a a sort of broad coalition uh the dark night way of thinking is exactly the wrong way to go about it it um it narrows the uh the church it shrinks the tent um and ultimately it means that only a very small group who are kind of left-wing quotes on quotes on every single point are remain the good guys as it were and i don't think you actually explicitly said the word pluralist there but that is a word that obviously i've taken um it's, it's a word i've essentially taken from the book i didn't really i think kind of categorically think of myself as a pluralist before reading this book i guess if i was questioned i would have said yes but now i certainly identify much more clearly to myself as a pluralist after reading your book it felt like my uh, my thoughts and opinions were kind of laid out on the page. My politics were kind of um, articulated for me in that first chapter when I read the book. And I know that um, Peter Kyle said something very similar at, at, at the uh, launch of your book with Progress and Policy Network a couple of weeks ago, that he felt his politics was kind of laid out on the page. Um, so effectively what you're saying is that this pluralism that you're advocating, I guess necessarily... Um, in creating a dark night myth, you're you're um, ignoring a lot of the views of a lot of other people on the political spectrum. So effectively, if you want to be a pluralist, I guess it's kind of logically necessary that you cannot um, cannot engage in dark night myths and can't therefore ignore any part of the electorate simply because they don't engage with the same ideas that you do on that level. Yeah, ab- absolutely. That's you've you've just you really got to the, the, the nub of it there, Joe. I think the um, I, I set out in the book that the the 
alternative to populism uh, is not sort of centrism or or neoliberalism or whatever people like to think it is. The alternative to populism is pluralism, which which is this idea that essentially society has a diversity of opinion within it. And that is not necessarily a bad thing. Um, and that if you assume that people who are on the other end of that spectrum of opinion are bad people, then you in, in automatically assume that people who are a bit closer to them or a bit more in the middle are slightly worse people than you. And you quite quickly get to a point where you've got a very, very small kind of ragtag group of people who are who are kind of the good guys in your book. Um, so to act, quite simply to operate in a democracy, um, you need to accept that there's a diversity of opinion and that, that there will be people who are to the right of you, people who disagree with you on certain points, people who, even if on 90% of the issues are a kind of uh, a, a card-carrying socialist, might have an area where you're not at all comfortable with what they think. And all of those things are really essential to um, to to functioning in a democracy. So in a certain respect, I think the 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 dark knight myth, the idea that that the other side are, are enemies, are scum, are vermin, to use the more extreme examples that you sometimes get on social media, is 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 kind of runs counter to to democracy really and to the idea that there is a has to be necessarily a mixture of opinions in any society. No, definitely. And I think the evidence that you use throughout the book, also in the in the other parts of the book, in the Puppet Master and Golden Era sections, but the evidence you use to show that the clear uh, moral and policy um, differences and complexity that exists across um, across electorates in the UK and elsewhere, I think is is really um, it's really clear that that being a pluralist is if you're going to build an electoral coalition the way forward. Um, and I really want to get onto. To some of that later, but first, if we could just stay with the Dark Knight. Um, in chapter seven, I think we talk about the case against the Dark Knight from a perspective of policy. You you differentiate between the two tier model, the populist model, and the four tier model, the pluralist model. The two tier model being that people um, have an image, and then uh, they have their principles behind that image. And the image can be political; it's the image you present publicly, and then the principles underlying that are the, who you really are. And that is it. You're explaining in the book. That's a simplified way of seeing it. That the, the real, the the more true way to see it is that we have an image which we present, and then under below that we have policy and strategy that informs that image, and then we have political values that inform that policy and strategy, and then below those values we have personal morals which inform those political values, in turn inform the policy and strategy, and then the image. And my question to that is that would you say that? Activate, uh, uh, existing in that way runs slightly counter to the way that humans work because it's it's a lot easier for in any situation to pick a side to say that's that side's true to who I am, um, like you say to to be to be with the in group at that moment. So the four tier model seems like for a rational person, for a rational political thinking person, it's definitely the right way to proceed. But does it overcomplicate and therefore stand in opposition to the way that we tell stories about ourselves and others? Uh, I guess I guess it does in a way. What the, these two models that I talk about, just to to yeah to explain them br- briefly, I've tried to break apart a person's what I call their their personal morals from their political values uh, to begin with. So I tried to say that someone can be a decent person who would pass basic moral tests, be it you know, helping a single mum carry a pram up a flight of stairs or, or whatever it might be, whilst also having uh, political political values, which we would fundamentally disagree with. Uh, and then I've tried to say even within people whose political values we share, people might have different ideas about doing things. So classically within Labour, there might be people who share political values, but think that, you know, a greater level of private sector involvement is necessary to achieve those values or whatever it might be. Um, so it's trying to break apart the layers rather than so that you avoid the point where you start to say, okay, this person supports this policy that I disagree with, therefore they don't share my political values, therefore they're a bad person. That's what I'm trying to argue against. Um, and uh, but, but I completely agree with you that in a certain respect, this what I'm arguing runs counter to to, to human nature in a way runs counter to human nature to say um, people are 
you know, to, to, to think, okay, that person supports that policy, but that doesn't necessarily mean that they um, uh, that, that they are supporting that policy because they are a bad person who wants um, people in poverty to suffer or whatever it might be. Um, so I, I do agree with you with that to a point. And I also, and I think one of the things I tried to sort of uh, accommodate within the book is an acceptance that these three myths I talk about, particularly the, the Dark Knight myth, also during the golden era are quite attractive and seductive as ways of story to, as, as modes of storytelling um and uh to a certain extent we need to examine them to avoid being being seduced sometimes i think um but so so, so i think yeah it, it goes the dark night myth in a way it's quite it's quite helpful for people who are activists because it it really galvanizes you against the other side and allows you to go they're the bad people. They're, they they support this policy, which means they support these values, which means they're they're fundamentally corrupt or venal um, or, or immoral individuals, um, and that that makes makes you um, that enthusiastic and passionate about the side that you're advocating. Um, but I also think that that can be quite destructive and can prevent a dialogue of any kind if you start from the position that because someone shares a who has a slightly different view of you to you on a kind of narrow point about housing policy or geopolitics is coming from a position of uh, of avarice or spite then that causes the the political dialogue to completely break down and um, so i think they are sedu- it is seductive the dark knight myth the us and them myth but we need to fight against that and you mentioned in one of the latter chapters that there is something inherently difficult in trying to get someone to change the fundamentals of their view. So I certainly, you know, I, I see the difficulty, but I certainly think that you're right in examining them. I mean, there's no way you can read your entire book and still believe these myths, because once you read it, I feel like the readers examine these myths to an extent that they can't, they can't any longer indulge in them. Um, I want to turn to I want to turn to the puppet master. I loved the bit in the book where you talked about William Paley. Um, and for anyone who's not familiar, William Paley was, I think it was initially a religious argument that he, that he put forward, I think, about the idea of a watchmaker, um, i.e. God, necessarily existing because the world is too complex, just like a watch is too complex to have come into existence by chance or randomly. So just as a watch must have a watchmaker, there also must be a God. Um, and then you also, in the same chapter, use the metaphor of Occam's razor, the idea that the simplest argument is usually the one that is correct. Um, and these two metaphors that you use, they they you use them to talk to kind of, I feel like, lend um, to a chaos-based explanation of the world, um, which, of course, is, is, is directly contradictory to the idea of a puppet master controlling it. So I, I really want to... Um, if, if you could talk to us a bit about the way you see the world from from the perspective of it being predominantly based in chaos rather than, like you say, authored by a puppet master. Yeah, absolutely. This is, um, so the, this was the second myth. It's, as you say, it's the puppet master. And it's, I use the, I use the William Paley example because it was a, a metaphor that was, was used um, in, within philosophy uh, to defend the design argument, to defend the I, uh, the or to, to sort of lend credibility to the idea that there was a a god, there was a, a grand creator. Um, the world was too perfect, too too uh, meticulous and perfectly formed to have just been created out of nothing, um, or to have been created organically or naturally. Um, so William William Paley was a, a philosopher who was arguing in favour of the existence of God on that basis uh, and I compare that to the puppet master because I say that people I think people on the left look at the the inequalities in the world the the one percent owning this enormous amounts of value of wealth or at um uh things which fly in you know things like climate change which seem like they should be so easy to solve and yet go unsolved and they assume that there must be some kind of almost a godlike figure, some kind of small, clever group pulling the strings or working together to make society this unfair and unequal, as unfair and unequal as, as, as 
as these as uh, people in the populist left see it. Um, so I think that, that I use that metaphor as an example because I think it's really important to to challenge it and to say, actually, I, the the world's problems do not come in every instant because there is a, a powerful elite crushing the will of the people. I mean, they might come for that reason in periods of totalitarian government or in a, a kind of feudal, society, historic feudal society. But in the modern day, I think less and less do they come for those, through those reasons. And more and more, the problems of the world come through, uh, uh, come, come through a kind of chaotic, anarchic, uh, organic system, if you like, be it globalization, which means that governments have less and less power over their um, over where businesses choose to settle, or how businesses, uh, you know, ca- how fluid capital is, um, or be it a kind of uh, a twenty-four hour news media which scrutinizes and creates these very short-term incentives for politicians and people in the public eye. Um, I think that fundamentally we live in a, a chaotic world not a conspiracy and that the problems that the left seeks to address come through chaos not conspiracy to give one one obvious example the the rise of inequality in the past um 40 uh, 40 years or so has come in a period uh it, i my my explanation of that would be that it's come as a result of um it being easier and easier for businesses to settle abroad, easier and easier for businesses to relocate their their sort of tax uh, tax bases to other countries to circumnavigate certain regulations. It's become easier and easier for an an, an industry to relocate to a place where labour is cheaper or land is cheaper. Um, so, and, and on top of that, you've got changes in this in the the values of the society, quite organic changes in the values of the society as people have become better off more kind of uh more of an emphasis on um property ownership for example i think these things all of the all of them in their individual ways explain the rise of inequality um far better than the idea that a kind of small neoliberal elite put their heads together during the 1970s and 80s uh, and worked out a way of um kind of keeping the rest of us subjecting the rest of us to a system that benefited only them so that's the kind of argument i'm trying to make make and i think it's essential that the labor party the labor party and the left in general really engages this with these problems because one of the big problems with the puppet master narrative quite apart from everything else is that it, it means you're incapable of um of really understanding where problems societies are and incapable of engaging with the limitations of power. Uh, So what you end up with is a kind of really simplistic view of politics that all we need to do is is sort of get into the cockpit, as it were, and and press the the brake on and turn the the poverty dial down to zero um, and turn the inequality dial off and whatever it might be. So um, I think it's really important that the left actually engages with a society which is chaotic and anarchic and organic rather than imagining that there's this um this grand creator somewhere and in directly um as it relates to the mainstream media um you talk a lot about the feedback loop between media and um readership or viewers or listeners and how newspapers or media sources are reactive to the views of their voters um out of their re- re- readers, sorry, and they know what their readers want to hear and they know what is going to sell them newspapers or what is going to get them views. Um, how did you come to this understanding of the way the media works and this feedback loop? Did you go into the um, into that into that with the idea f- fully formed or was it looking at the evidence and the research that you present that brought you to that position? Because I do think the research you present is clear and it does show a feedback loop. It shows that it's not the media manipulating the public um, on every issue, like we, like we, like people who believe in the puppet master tend to tend to think. Um, so I'm interested to know how you how you came to that to that understanding about the feedback loop between the media and between readers and viewers, um, and why you think it's so easy for populists to give so much weight to the media in their in their puppet master theories. 
Yeah, well, I what what I um, noticed, and, and I was very frustrated with uh, Corbyn's leadership really from day one. But one of the first things that emerged was this absolutely um, this whole narrative around the mainstream media quotes the MSM, um, a whole set of things about we are his media, uh, which was a kind of hashtag that did the rounds. Um, in about, I think about 2016, um, a whole way of seeing and understanding the media, which was based on the media in Britain, being um, not just biased towards uh, the right, which I think they are, narrowly biased towards the right, but yes, biased towards the right, but actually being, um, you know, seeking to control society, seeking to act as a propaganda machine for the Conservatives um, in order to to keep Labour out of government because they were uh, frightened of what Labour might do in power. Now, I, I simply just did not believe that way of seeing the world. It didn't chime with my experiences of reading the newspapers. It didn't chime with anything that I was was seeing. Um, and uh, moreover, I'd been a, a press officer at various points in my life. I'd been a press officer for various Labour candidates um, and worked with the media in that capacity in a as a kind of fairly low-level press officer doing the rounds. Um, and my sense was constantly that you weren't engaging with this this great this great MSM machine that sought to silence people. You're engaging with a, a really um, a really kind of uh, anarch, anarchic responsive entity that was constantly dropping people to get other people on the programmes or just constantly looking for the, the most um, sensationalist or uh, kind of simplistic soap opera form of argument. Um, so I'm not, I'm not supportive of the media uh, within the book necessarily and with the role that the media plays in politics. But what I argue is that it's, it, it come, its problems come from being um, like, you know, short-termist, uh, quick to um you know looking looking for simple simple solutions and simple explanations not through it being a kind of propaganda arm of the powerful um and to look at that and i think there's there's lots and lots of examples that sort of demonstrate that uh even even if you look at the um the coverage of the the 2008 banking crisis for example you find papers like the daily mail um, and the sun doing huge exposés of bankers who've uh, uh, who've broken who'd broken the rules during the crisis um you know quite rightly in many cases but that even stuff like that completely undermines the idea which a lot of left populists like to buy into that the papers um seek to focus on immigrants or, or on welfare claimants because they're seeking to protect their their friends in high places um so yeah, it came from a combination of my my own experience as a reader, but also my experience engaging with the media and trying to get place stories in the media or respond to, respond to stories from the media, which none of these things pointed towards a, a carefully calculated system looking to to quote manufacture manufacture consent to use the Noam Chomsky phrase. Rather, it pointed to a, a real kind of law of the jungle. Type thing. So what I do in the book is I, as I talk about that, the idea of the MSM, and I, the counterpoint I use is Tony Tony Blair's description of the media uh, from when he left office, which was the, the feral beasts analysis. He talked he had very little time for the media and their role in politics, but he talked about feral beasts pairing up reputation, kind of grabbing hold of um, of anything that was of interest and and. Uh, a, a real kind of free for all Lord of the uh, law of the jungle, uh, and I thought that was a much better analysis of where the media goes wrong when it's at its worst than the kind of idea that Jeremy Corbyn consistently put forward of a, a system rigged by billionaires, as he's been in the past. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. 
Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction, and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Turning to another specific example of the Puppet Master myth, um, something which obviously has been in the news a lot recently, which is um, anti-Semitism. And... I think anti-Semitism is, you know, after I, I knew before reading the book, but clear, after reading the book, it's even more clear. Anti-Semitism is such a perfect example of the puppet master myth. And I think you say towards the end of the book that it's like the puppet master myth with Dark Knight um, ideas about the Middle East added in. Um, so I want to get your views on how you see anti-Semitism as, as it relates to the puppet master myth and why the puppet master myth means that so many on the populist left um, and the right as well, but are unable to renege on their anti-Semitism, to apologise, to understand the ill of their ways um, and how that relates to the fact that they simply can't um, take themselves away from their puppet master worldview. Yeah, absolutely. I, 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 I think that the, uh, um, the anti-Semitism stems within the left from the fact that, uh, or, or in a large part, it stems from conspiracy really from conspiracy theories but from ways of thinking which are i suppose the thinner end of the conspiracy theory wedge um as well the idea that uh uh the, that there's a, a small group who who control things um kind of feeds into and bleeds into uh ways of thinking um on the populist left at almost every level um to give an example, there's a, a quote I think I used in the presentation from uh, from Owen Jones, who he says, today's establishment is made up of powerful groups who need to protect their position in a democracy in which almost the entire adult population has the right to vote. This establishment uh, represents an attempt on behalf of these groups to manage democracy, to make sure it doesn't threaten their own interests. Um, so I'm not accusing Owen Jones of being on the kind of full crank left, but that's the kind of way of thinking which I think uh, infects large parts of the Corbyn project um, because it imagines this relatively small group managing democracy and suppressing the popular will. And once you start to think about who this group are, this this one percent managing the popular will, you start to say, well, who could they be? Because no one that I know in my personal life is um, sort of superhuman enough to. Uh, to, to micromanage events so that they pan out exactly as they'd hoped. Nor are many of the people I know in my life inhuman enough that they would do that and keep the rest of us poor and um, and everything else for an extra zero on their bank balance. So once you've decided that society has got this kind of 1% who are fundamentally kind of both in, superhumanly competent and inhumanly callous, so whether you, if you think that to a greater or lesser degree, you start to think, who is that group? Where's that? Where does that group exist? Where do they? Where do they come from? How do they get to be in these positions of power? Uh, and I think for some people on the the left, um, on the populist left, that leads into uh, uh, anti semitism because you've got this this um, this group, this um, ethnic group kind of hiding in plain sight as they see it, you know, controlling things or um, planning out secret agendas, kind of Zionist agendas or whatever it may be. Um, the more extreme end, you get the idea that even something like the 9-11 was planned by that group or 
whatever it might be. But um, the the in my view, the puppet master way of seeing society, the way of seeing society based on a an all powerful one percent or a very powerful one percent who keep the rest of us down, is fundamentally almost, if you like, a gateway drug to anti-Semitism because um, you cannot help but begin to wonder who are these people? How did they get there? Uh, and for a small number of people on the the far left, I think that crosses the tracks into overt racism. Mm. It's incredibly interesting. I think I just found it so um, so convincing, so so clear. Um, the idea that that puppet master theory contributes to anti-Semitism and explains it um, to a large extent. Um, I want I want to I want to turn to the golden era myth i think this is probably my for me the most interesting of the myths i think you do spend the most time on it in the book um and what you do is you lay out the golden era myth and then you lay out i think eight different potential narratives um that we could view as core or central since world war ii and maybe uh uh you lay out these eight narratives as different ways of viewing the world as opposed to the golden era theory that we need to go back to this perfect time that existed um, previously in history. Um, and I want to ask you of those eight narratives that you present, what do you think is the most convincing of those? Um, which of those do you think has the best potential to, in the public perception, the mainstream to usurp the, the golden era narrative and why that narrative? Why do you think that one that you're going to choose is, is the most effective? It is the most convincing yeah absolutely that's a really interesting question and just to explain where those um i think it's actually seven uh alternate narratives come from but where they come from is that the uh this golden era idea um is i think a really integral part of left-wing thinking or left populist thinking as i put it it's this idea of that there was a sort of an original socialism um, that Labour was fighting for uh, and that Labour achieved or embodied in some sense um, and that that original socialism has been sort of whittled away gradually by, usually by neoliberalism is the, the word that tends to be used here. Neo neoliberalism is the kind of coronary artery, if you like, of the golden era myth. Um, and what this myth says is that we lived in a... Uh, we lived in a, a progressive left-wing world based on community, um, collectivism, people looking out for each other, etc., uh, etc., et and that 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 from certainly from 1979 onwards, that world departed, and that in a certain respect, we need to return to that world, and that we we can return to that world, um, and and I think. A good example of the myth is, for example, the uh, the film Spirit of Forty Five uh, by Ken Loach, which which paints this kind of glorious past and then the decline into the present. Um, so I looked at these seven myths because I wanted to look at what well, if if this idea isn't true, if it's not true that there was this glorious golden age of socialism at some point in the past, either in the first few years or even like that, which descended into the modern world. Then what is the what is the story of the past seven or so decades of British history? What is the, what is the story of the successes and failures of the left, which is more more convincing, if you like? Um, and I, the, yeah, the, there's a number of things I look at within it, um, and I suppose it's quite hard to pick out a single one. Um, but the one that particularly, I suppose. Is I think really important for people on the the left to sort of think about is the I call it the the shift from um, groupish values to individualist values um, to post materialist values. I think these these are three sort of different value sets, if you like. Um, groupish values are based on um, society is based on kind of tribalism looking after your group, looking after your community, uh, but also very socially conservative, protecting, you know, scanning the horizon for threats, so, you know, not wanting to wanting to protect your community and your own 
but not wanting to um, uh, to, to kind of um, seeing everything in terms of resources and threats. The second values group is is individualism, which is, as it sounds, I suppose, more the move towards seeing yourself as an individual, striving to do well for yourself as an individual or for your family as an, as, as a, um, as an individual family, um, based on kind of aspiration and 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 uh, an ambition and achievement. And then the third sort of values group is um, post-materialist values, which are based on a sort of wider global consciousness, a uh, self-fulfillment, um, a kind of concern about ethics and, and, and society in a, in, a, in a wider, more sort of philosophical sense, if you like. Um, and these three value sets have, I think, existed through, in society throughout history. But historically, the kind of the first one I mentioned, the groupish value values were much much more common within society i think and there's quite a lot of evidence to 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 back this up you know for example for example the number of people um uh supporting post, uh, post-materialist statements like um i want to live in a society where ideas are worth more than money has steadily increased i think in fact doubled in the last um uh, 20 or 30 years or something like that so I the society was historically very much founded I think on groupish values of people with tight-knit communities looking after their own um, and a quite a kind of tribalist traditionalist way of viewing things which was both had progressive elements in that people you know would join you know trade unions and and there would be more of a sense of collectivism um, but also uh also um non-progressive elements you know when it came to lgbt rights or um the you know the family is an institution being extremely important the traditional traditional family being very important so i think our values have changed as a society partly as a result of society becoming more affluent i think we've got many more people with individualist values which kind of margaret thatcher for example very much uh, tapped into, I think that the, the tipping point where individualist values became more and more common in society was the, the thing that Margaret Thatcher understood and formed a political base around um, and was able to, to tap into kind of aspirational working class voters and, and things like that. But, and later, uh, Tony Blair kind of sought to understand that individualism and, and aspiration. And then more recently, we've got the rise of really kind of um, post- uh, post-materialist values being much more dominant in society so that you've got um, uh, you know even things like the rise of um, veganism as a kind of common concern across society as something that that is much more common so I think there's been a much more there's there's, there's quite a curious um, development in society as values have become more mixed and we've and society hasn't been comprised of the kind of security driven groupish values to the same extent to which it was during the 50s and 60s and 70s um you know if you remember the 1945 to 1951 labor governments uh were um they were concerned with social security in terms of housing and the nhs but also with national security in terms of um uh, in terms of NATO, for example, so that there was this very security-driven consensus that Labour was able to tap into, and that's gradually changed. So I think really trying to understand those values in society and how they've changed is really important for the left, rather than going back to this quite simplistic, quite misty-eyed idea that there was, um, you know, there was an era of kind of fellow feeling and and sort of perfect communities that that looked after each other and looked at and were kind of progressive in every sense and that they've slowly been replaced by rampant consumerism and, and whatever else I think it's important for us to not buy into that and to instead think about how values within society have really changed and I think that that's such an interesting point such an interesting part of the book for me I think it's probably the most consequential going forward um 
obviously it's not an election for four years, but looking to Labour's next uh, next manifesto, looking to the next election and the promises they're going to make to the public and um, the platform on which they're going to try and win. Do you think that there needs to be far more emphasis on aspiration, a word you mentioned there? Because like you say, there was a rise in individualist thinking on the level of values uh, towards the end of the the middle to the end of the 20th century. Um, and then post-materialism has to some extent taken over in the 21st. But I also feel that I, I agree and looking at the evidence that you mentioned in the book, I think that there is a, a real um, mix of individualism and post-materialism um, in the current political climate. So what do you think that means for Labour's um, electoral strategy in four years? Do we need an, uh, an emphasis on aspiration more? And how can we merge the uh, um, how can we merge individualist and post-materialist values to engage that coalition of voters? Yeah, that's a, a really that's in a way that's the sort of million dollar uh, million dollar question, and I don't don't profess to to know the the answer in full to that. But um, and I think one thing I would say is it's much harder for contemporary. It's much harder if you've got a really mixed society in terms of values if you've got kind of post-materialist Guardian readers who are really very, very internationalist in their outlook, and you're trying to keep them in the camp at the same time as quite socially conservative voters that are put more from Labour's heartlands. Um, I think that's that's a much harder ask than maybe a few decades ago when there, was a, when there, there wasn't quite such a diversity of values. Uh, and like I said, I don't, don't profess to know the, uh, the answer, but I mean, when, to, to look at one example, um, the seat of the seat of Putney uh, was. I remember on um, dimly. I remember on election night in 1997, that being one of the after after the Michael Portillo moment, one of the biggest victories for Labour in winning that seat. I think really by the skin of their teeth, um, a solid Tory affluent seat in central London. And one of the things I was struck by on election night in 2019, in a much 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 worse election for Labour across the country was that they held on to Putney. Um, and I think I'm right in saying that the Labour's vote has actually increased in Putney over the subsequent uh, subsequent years. So I'm just using Putney as an example of somewhere where I think increasingly kind of post-materialists, cosmopolitan values probably replaced individualist ones and Labour's vote has probably become, um, has become stronger. Uh, on the question of how you hold that together and how you win back both the red wall seats whilst Keeping hold of the the the, the Putneys of this world, but also of the um, the the university seats where Labour has done so well. I think, like I said, I profess to have the answer, but I think that the key thing is that engaging in anything culture wars related is an absolute fool's errand. Um, focus, you know, getting into debates mm. about whether whether Winston Churchill was a racist or not, and kind of or whatever it might be and you know looking at Winston Churchill's kind of very mixed history and so and seeking to present him as a, a hero or a villain a white knight or a dark knight for example is something which can only alienate the post post-materialist core that have, can, have increasingly voted Labour um, or alienate the the post-materialist the, the 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 groupish kind of traditionalist voters that were were the the, the former Labour Party base. Um, so yeah, that would be, and that's something I think Keir Starmer's done a very good job of, is avoiding wading into these issues about essentially quite small symbolic things, um, because I think they're the things more than anything, more than actual policies, which div create divides between the values group and make it very hard for Labour to to cling on to um, uh, to cling on to, to to both the kind of groupish value sets and the post materialist value sets, um, yeah. So that would that would be that would be my uh, my my um, my take on it really. And I think uh, obviously as part of that, you have to actually get the policies right so that we've got we're able to address regional inequality. We're able to have substantive things to say on you know investing in town communities um or uh you know addressing addre addressing the the regional inequality in many coastal towns or post-industrial towns for example um but i also think 
I think focusing on that substance is has to be the focus rather than um, getting involved in trivial debates or getting involved in trivial gestures like refusing to bow to the Queen or whatever else Jeremy Corbyn is getting up to. And I think it, it sounds like you're saying if you if we understand the the movement of these values across time since the Second World War, we'll understand what key cultural um, arguments or uh, value-based arguments just do not make sense to get into and which of those will really surely turn voters away. Um, and I think I have a much firmer grasp of that after reading your book. So I'd recommend... I'd recommend anyone who's, in, who's involved with um, determining Labour's next electoral strategy to give your book a read before they do so. Um, one of the last arguments you make in the book is about the innocence to awareness shift. Another one of the narratives you described that we, the way we could look at the world since World War II. Um, and I think it is a consequential and, 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 and meaningful narrative for the future because the, the information epoch which we find ourselves in is a very novel one. I mean, with social media and, and 24 hour media, it's um, it's all come to fruition really over the course of my lifetime since, since the mid nineties. Um, and I'm interested to know what you think about how this will affect these myths in the future. Do you see 24 hour news media, social media, this, this um, perpetual virtual town square as providing a base on which these myths will thrive? Or do you think that access to information will eventually lead us further towards the truth and away from these from these myths? Uh, I think access to, to information has to ultimately be a good thing and lead us towards the truth. Um, to, to, to kind of explain that myth, um, for those who haven't read the book, the, I talk about one of the, the final change that we've seen since the post-war years being a... Um, the move from innocence to awareness and the, the move from, I suppose, a more deferential society to a more questioning and clued up society on many questions. But what I point out is that this move from innocence to awareness means that there is much more, that much more of a heightened anger about problems not being solved, much more of a, in a way, often a cynicism um, about things, which makes it a quite hard political environment to uh, to operate on when when politicians have much higher levels of scrutiny, much higher levels of um, uh, much lower levels of deference. I'm to be absolutely clear, I'm not saying that's a bad thing that that development has happened, but I think it's important that we we think about how, that we are able to rationally analyze things. So one of the one of the consequences I talk about in the book is that from innocence to awareness means that crime is much more reported. Uh, and um, there's a kind of phenomenon of everyone thinks that crime is going up because they and th- and thinks it's been going up for decades because they they read about it in the newspapers, they hear about the worst examples of it, they see it on social media. Um, there's mu- they're much more aware of the crimes that do happen, but actually Crime has, in a general sense, been falling quite steadily, certainly was falling steadily since, um, let's say, the 1980s. Um, so how do you how do you govern in an era where people are more exercised about crime, but there's less of it? I don't, again, I don't know the, the answer to that, but I think forms of public engagement are going to be increasingly important to this, uh, and forms of really some of the sort of fact-checking elements uh, as well, I'm not saying that myth busting is the answer to this necessarily, um, but I think having a tr- rebuilding trust in certain sources so that you don't have the kind of social media stuff going on um, is, is quite an important element as well. And um, turning to turning to our, our in group, if you like, the Labour Party, the the left of politics um, here in Britain. And in, in in America and across across the world as well, you talk to the end of the book about um, the word moderate and centrist, and you you refer to them kind of as, as if they're epithets. And I'm wondering um, where you where you land on that. Whether you think that we should, as quote unquote moderates, we should actually reject those terms. We should say no. We are the true left wingers. We are the left wingers who truly want to see left wing parties in power. Um, and we reject any 
thinking or, or, or propositions from the, from, from the hard left that they are the true left wingers and that we are centrists and moderates. And that actually what we should be, um, what we should be putting forward is the idea that we are pluralists and that has nothing to do with how far left wing we are in our views. That would, that would absolutely be my, my view. Um, I think we on the quotes centre left have been much, much too willing to accept the argument that we're centrists, that we're kind of um, halfway between the two, that we're sort of splitters of the difference between left and right. Um, and to suggest that our real issue with with Corbynism um, is with uh, and, and with what's happened in the last five years is with it being too left wing, too redistributive, or um, too progressive in some sense. Uh, certainly for me, that was never my issue with uh, with with um, Jeremy Corbyn, and uh, it was never my issue with that side of the Labour Party. My frustration was with these three myth, these three myths, as I came to call them, and these these ways of thinking about society, which I thought just didn't correspond with the society that I saw in front of me. And I think that if you believe in a if you believe in the dark night myth, each of the myths makes it really hard for you to actually be be effective in a political climate. If you believe in the dark night myth, you're essentially unable to understand your your opponents. Um, if you believe in the puppet master myth, you're unable to understand power and how it operates. Uh, and if you believe in a golden era myth, you're unable to look at change and actually understand change and what's what's changing in society. Um, so I'm, I would argue that the, the real difference between the two wings of Labour, which have been, you know, fighting on and off for the past five years and in a certain sense on and off for since since the, the party was founded, um, is between the kind of pluralist view of the world that you engage with society as it is uh, and you um, engage with power as it is and you understand and adapt to change uh, and the, as I see it, the populist view of the world that you, um, that you contest the enemy, that you sort of... Uh, present easy answers, that you claim that politics is easy um, and that whenever there's a, whenever anyone asks you, asks you about it, you hark back to this, this moment of, of original socialism that, that, that was what we should go back to. Um, so, yeah, I, I fundamentally don't, I think we should reject terms like centrist and moderate, um, certainly within some of the, inter- more than we have done within the internal debates that have been going on within the party and say, like we're, we're people who are progressive, we're people who are radical, who are left wing in many cases, but who um, who just don't see the world in the same way and don't believe in these these bogey monsters and, um, and kind of uh, monsters under the bed sort of a thing. I think that's where our wing of the, politi- the party needs to make our argument is, is uh, that we're pluralists, we're not centrists. Um, certainly for me, my... And, and I think we've got some quite strong arguments that we could make there. I mean, if you look at, uh, let's say, the period between um, 97 and 2010, and then you look at w- w- during which the, the, the centrists, quotes unquote, the moderates, the, the quotes right of the party were in power. Um, and then if you look at the period between 2010 and 2020, during which the, um, the, the, the soft left and then the the far left are in power within the party. Um, the UK as a whole, I would argue, moved in a much more progressive direction between 97 and 2010 than in the subsequent decade. Um, and that, that might sound like a kind of uh, a trite or provocative argument, but I genuinely, um, I'm on the, the side of the Labour Party that I am because I believe it's more efficient at delivering progressive and left-wing goals because it sees things more clearly. Uh, and I think we should be making that argument um, much, much more forcefully, really. Certainly, if there's a, um, if we arrive in, again in a situation like we did in 2015. I think it's something you're referring to there, and we didn't really have time to talk about it. But it's the over the Overton window, which you mentioned in the book, um, and and I thought it was really convincing the way you laid out in clearly in the diagrams um, the kind of physical movement of a window um, in the diagrams, and and explained throughout the different um, 
periods in the 20th century and then into the early 21st century, how the Overton window moved and how it moved in a way that we maybe didn't even realize and that it was, it was um, affecting our values and it was affecting our perspective and our worldview and our politics, but in a way that we didn't really understand maybe until you look back at it and look at the shifts. And I think one of those big ones was the shift from Thatcher and Major to a, uh, uh, the, to the new Labour government, to the Overton window created when the new Labour government came in and started talking about childhood poverty and started talking about the things that matter to um, to working people and to people on the left. Um, and I just really would really briefly want to ask you about the Overton window theory and how you came to that um, metaphor, that idea, and why you thought that was effective um, in, in, in pushing forward the argument that the golden era myth is a myth. Yeah, I, I talked I talked about that in the book partly because the Overton window it's an idea that has I think it's originally an idea that um, the libertarian right in America talked about to describe um, where the political center of gravity is at a given time. What is the what are the parameters of what is considered doable and publicly sayable within the democracy? Um, and I think it's been it was increasingly borrowed by the Corbynite left and by some of Jeremy Corbyn's kind of outriders in the media um, as a way of analysing society. And their their view was that by having Corbyn in, they would move the Overton window of the country to the left. Um, now, as it's happened, I would say that almost every question they moved the Overton window of the country has been moved to the the right under Corbyn's watch to the point where we have a someone like um, Priti Patel with her kind of values as, as Home Secretary. But I don't, what I tried to do in the book was that it's quite easy for people on the, the centre-left to, to scoff at this Overton window idea and treat it as a, as a bit of kind of pseudo-intellectual jargon. Um, but actually, I think it's quite an interesting idea of really trying to understand how politics has changed and, and where the Overton, and, and where... And what which things are, are not sayable anymore that were sayable a few decades ago, um, and vice versa. And what I tried to do in the book was to look at this kind of quite complicated series of shifts that have taken place uh, over the past seventy years in terms of what the expectations of the country are, what the expectations, you know, what what is politically sayable and politically doable now that wasn't seventy years ago, and and and, and vice versa. So the, the way I've tried to use it um, is to take it seriously as an idea and to look at how um, look at how things have actually changed. Uh, and, and I think when you do that, you get a much more complicated picture than this golden era idea of a, a really radical left wing Overton window replaced by a really, really radical right wing Overton window. And you get a much more complicated picture, but you also get a picture of um, the the political centre of gravity always, in my view, moving towards the liberal left each time Labour is in power. Um, Labour generally, uh, when it leaves government, tends to leave the, the the values of the country. I think in a more progressive place and the laws of the country in a more progressive place than when um, than when it arrived in power. And I think. One of the problems with the golden era is it prevents us from seeing this. We see everything as this decline. Um, there's a quote from that I used from uh, George Monbiot where he says, um, uh, Labour always looks like their opponents with a five-year lag. And what this means is that we're constantly, every time there's an outgoing Labour Prime Minister, um, we, we pretend they're a traitor or a, a sellout, you know, unfit to lace the boots of Keir um, Hardy or whoever it might be. Uh, and we are unable to actually look at the present and the changes that have been achieved and to build on those. And I think the most convincing, I think one of the most convincing sentences in the entire book for me was when you say that the Overton window is predominantly shifted by those in power. And that is predominantly how you shift the political consensus in the Overton window is, is, by, is by getting left-wing governments in power and that's how you move it to the left. Um, I. I mean, we're coming to the end of the time, so we're going to have to wrap up. I wish we could get into more about the book. I still have so many things I'd like to to talk to you, uh, to, to talk about with you. Um, I hope we can revisit it at some point over the next few years as 
as internal Labour Party politics and British politics moves along and we can see where these myths are at some point in the future after being so prevalent in our movement over the last five years. Um, And I want to thank you for your time today, but I also want to thank you for writing the book because I think a couple of weeks ago I was a moderate, I was a centrist, I was whatever else. Now I'm a pluralist. I think now I predominantly identify as a pluralist and that is genuinely as a consequence of having read the book. So thank you for writing it, for explaining, for articulating my politics for me so clearly and for giving me a new perspective on how to view the struggles that that, um, we go through internally in the party and that left-wing politics is going through across the world. So um, thanks for writing in. Thank you so much for, for coming on the podcast today. Brilliant. Thank you very much, Joe. I really enjoyed it. Thanks.